hi, I'm Jean Godfrey June, and this is Megan O'Neill. We are the beauty editors at Goop. And you're listening to Goop's podcast series, The Beauty Closet, where we talk about all things beauty, clean, non-toxic beauty, skin care, hair care, body care, self-care, and the way we think about beauty, both as individuals and in the wider culture. Our guest today just blows my mind because I can't imagine even attempting to try to do what she's famous for. We're talking to former professional race car driver, Danica Patrick, the most successful woman in the history of American open wheel racing. She's made history in so many ways and looked incredible doing it. She's set records again and again in the more than male dominated world of motorsports. She's always stood out as this this woman. To name just a few of them, in her first Indianapolis 500 race in 2005, she became the first woman to score a top five finish. In 2008, she made history again as the first and only woman to win a major league open wheel race in a North American series with her victory in the IndyCar series, Indy Japan 300 race. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she broke records in the 2015 NASCAR Cup Series having the most top 10 finishes of any female. She retired from racing in 2018, and now she's this successful entrepreneur with so many amazing projects going on. Yeah, to go into an industry like race car driving, where she's the only woman competing most of the time, and then to succeed in such a you know legendary way, she is mind-blowing. Definitely yeah. what that is. I'm completely in awe of her and want to know everything, what it's like to race, her workout routine and what she eats, the criticism she's gotten for being a sex symbol. Danica's also modeled on the cover of Sports Illustrated. You have to Google it. She looks incredible. And she was named one of People Magazine's most beautiful people, as well as one of Time's 100 most influential people. She's also written two books. She's a winemaker running two wine companies, and she hosts the podcast Pretty Intense. She's got a lot happening. She's so cool. Let's get to Danica. Danica, so happy to have you here. Yay. Yeah. Let's start with your story. You started go-karting at 10 years old in Roscoe, Illinois, where you were raised. What about it got you hooked? I liked the feeling of like it was an instant gratification kind of thing and there aren't really many many things in the world like that and so I guess at 10 years old even I appreciated that element so I liked you know going out on the track and practicing and coming back in after a run and asking my dad how fast I went and you know the lap time coming down so I really I liked that I liked that element of it I'm good was it an unusual pursuit for a kid where you were living? Like, and then as a teenager, was it unusual? You're a beautiful girl. Like, did people be like, how can this be? <laughs> Thank you. It is unusual, of course, because there's really not many girls in racing. I mean, when you look at it. So yes, it's odd. My dad raced though. So that's kind of why ah. it happened. When he was a kid, he raced motocross. Then he raced snowmobiles on like flat track, ice flat tracks. And then oh. and then he raced what's called midgets, which are these cars that race, they're like, they look sprint cars. So he didn't, re- he didn't stop racing until my sister was born. So we're about exactly two years apart. So that's when he stopped racing. And yeah, there's cute pictures of like my sister and I, when we we're little, little kids hanging on like a race car that was in, you know, mom and dad's backyard. Yeah, it was, it, you know, my dad has a lot of experience. And so I just think that that's really obviously what made it easier and even an idea. Yeah. 
you know, you go to school and you think, oh, play volleyball or basketball or do cheerleading or be in the band or track, but you don't go to school and be like, so I decided I'd go down the race team and mm-hmm. like, maybe a go-kart, you know, like that doesn't <laughs> happen. No uh, insurance company would pay for that. So yeah, so it is odd to even try, but it's because of my family background that it happened. And then it was my sister whose idea it was. She had someone in her class that, that raced and so their family lived in our neighborhood. And I remember that we went to their house and went in the backyard to their shed where the go-karts were, looked at them, went to a race, and then decided to get go-karts. So originally, it was really just a way to bring us together as a family because my dad worked a lot, a lot, and my mom took care of us. So it was really meant to bring us together. Of course, it backfired on them, and I left home when I was 16 when I was (laughs) still in high school, but you know, whatever. Did you enjoy the double take that people... Like, especially when you were little and growing up, when people would be like, you what? Like, was that something you... Yeah. I remember being in high school and nobody asked me how I did. Like, nobody thought about it. The most common thing somebody would say would be like, where where are you ranked? You know? And I'm Uh like, well, it's not really like tennis or something where it's like, I'm world rank, whatever. You don't get that. I remember saying but I am like winning this and leading this championship and won this. I'm like, and you know, within my group. So I guess I'm kind of number one. I remember <laughs> telling you that. But, but yeah, it was just normal childhood. I mean, I just missed a lot of stuff. And so I didn't really think about that much. I just thought it was super fortunate for me to be able to have this opportunity to do, I had two lives. Like I got to go home and have my school life, but then I had my racing life, which is a whole nother group of people and Mm. another existence. It was fun for me. It felt like I was the lucky one. Like I was the one that got to go do all these cool things. And like, that's not like a sacrifice. Yeah, it's a passion. That's not a... It's not a dedication in a way of like pain. Right. It was pleasure. Aside from, you know, adroit eye foot coordination, what makes someone a great racer? I mean, that is a good question. It's difficult to understand maybe the origin of how. Maybe you can kind of explain further and further what makes you great once you're in the sport, like, you know being able to adapt very quickly, being able to make good split-second decisions, being able to push the boundaries of the car really far all the time, being able to keep yourself calm in situations so that you can still operate from your trained operating system, not your sort of fight or flight system. You know, just, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can sort of point to that make you good. Being able to drive a loose car, like, you know, working with your team really well, but the actual, like what made, what makes someone just able to drive or able to race? If I had to probably draw one conclusion, like one really important one is maybe two focus. And an, an ability to be very intensely focused for extended periods of time. And probably within that focus, then confidence, belief. You can't think, oh my God, I'm going to crash, I'm going to crash. You're going to crash. As an example, I remember when I would race at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, it was just such a fast track and it was very flat, which means it's easier to lose control. There's less banking holding your the car in on the track and not in the wall. I remember going through the sort of transition of saying to myself, okay, I'm only going to decide when I'm going to, if I'm going to pit this lap after one and two, 
<laughs> like there's no way I'm going through one and two thinking maybe because you can't think maybe at 240. <laughs> so like those are, that's kind of the example of the level of commitment. Even just in practice, it was like, you can't have any kind of half-assed moment to what you're doing because it requires all of you. Mm. Do you have to be physically in shape to drive? Like, is there training? Like how important is coordination versus guts versus muscle versus equipment? Well, there's some pretty uncoordinated drivers that have put that on display <laughs> and to dribble a basketball and things like that. So I don't think that's very important. Fitness, you know, there's sort of this, I'm going to say no in a way, because like there's also some drivers who have, you know, physically displayed that you don't need to be a temple of fitness, <laughs> commitment, and food, food choices. They, you know, hold on to a steak with one hand and a soda with another. And that's the real situation. I mean, within it, though, there's, there's being race fit, which would just be, you know, the muscles and the sort of what you need to do the job. Fitness is, I think it is important. I do. I believe that I was generally usually more fit than I needed to be for the job because I like fitness. But I, I mean, some level of fitness, I would say though, that if you were someone that was very anxiety ridden and you really were tense, it's going to make you tense behind the wheel. And so if you're really tense and you're really anxious and you're really gripping and you're really, and you can't breathe and just like digest the situation calmly, then you're going to waste a lot more energy and you're going to need more in reserve. So, you know, I think for someone who's not able to sort of breathe through situations and stay relaxed, you're going to need a higher level of fitness because you're going to be tapping your, you know, cardiovascular ability. And is crashing just sort of part of it? Did you ever have a particularly terrifying or bad crash that made you rethink things? Bad crashes, yes. Rethink things, no. Wow. Um, yeah, oddly enough, and in fact, I just interviewed one of my old teammates the other day, and he was talking about sort of that very dynamic and, you know, just this idea that we felt, he was saying he felt bad, but I'm putting myself in the same category with, with the story I'll tell you, that we were prepared to do the job even though it was dangerous. Like, honestly, so generally just saying like, felt bad for our family and friends and loved ones who had to put up with people that didn't prioritize them over mm -hmm. the job right? So everything fell under racing. The example is, it was my start of the 2006 season. It was the first race of the season in Florida and Homestead, Miami. And it was a morning warm up before the race. We used to do that until this event. And there was an accident and a car came around and didn't see it and, and drove straight into it and the car that, and so he died and he was a teammate. And then we didn't race that day as in my teammate and I, there was three of us. So that's to say what I'm going to say is that that was an art decision. And I guess I felt the worst and I expressed this, that I would have definitely just gone out that day. I would have gone out that day and I'm sorry to my family. I'm sorry to the people who love me that like that didn't affect me enough. That wasn't making me have some self-reflection that was putting me in a position of needing a pause or taking a break or regrouping or calming down or 
evaluating the whole situation. It was like, no, I would have gone out that day. That's kind of the level of the narrow focus and yeah. commitment and prioritization of the job. Going back to sort of the high school moment, dropping out and moving to the UK, which your parents were on board with, right? What was that like to be on your own at that age and, you know, without, like, did you have a support system there? Did you make friends? How did that work? It was amazing. Yeah. Uh, high school at 16. I'm free. I'm in another country away from my parents. Where <laughs> in England, they're not really checking IDs much. So mm-hmm. it was pretty amazing that I could come and go as I pleased. So yeah, it was really, really cool at first, but that wears off. Mm. And uh, the novelty of being on your own and being able to have that freedom wears off. So after that, it became more lonely. And especially the last year, I was there for three years. And the last year was, you know, I lived alone the last year. I didn't really have real friends. I know a lot of college age kids at the moment, like that, that 18, 19 age, I feel like everybody now has a tough time, like no matter what the situation is. So I wonder, you know, like that lonely, yeah. Maybe it's that big transition point in your life where you're going from, you know, you're going from this sort of built-in structure with yeah, parents with, with, you know, tons of people at school and, and then you're kind of moving on and out and, you know, everybody's trying to decide who they really resonate with, who they really like, what they want to do, who they really are, right? So yeah. it's like, it's just gears grinding, right? No one mm-hmm. really. So it's kind of a painful process, right? And you just have to, the quicker that you can settle into who you are, help will help you find your people. Definitely. (laughs) What is it like competing as a woman in a predominantly male industry? We we just have no concept of that. Yeah, it's true. We're like totally female company. Honestly, it's the hardest question. In fact, it's the, it's an impossible question in a way, because I don't know what it's like to be anyone else. Hmm. I don't know what it's like to be a guy. And so it's, it's funny. I'm so glad I interviewed my old teammate Dario the other day. As I said to him, I was like, I want to ask you what it was like to be out there with a girl because I get asked that all the time and I don't know how to answer. And so I don't get very many opportunities where I can ask somebody, what was it like? Or what did you see from your vantage point? And he ended up saying that There was, you know, just a lot going on around it. And then Mm. it sort of took a prove it moment for him. It was the 2005, my first Indy 500. So it was race number four of my IndyCar career. And I went out for qualifying and it was cold day. And I went and I promised myself I would go flat for all four laps, which means I don't lift Mm. off the throttle. It means when I go out... I come past the start finish line for the, for the, to start my four lap average, I'm not lifting. And so I went into turn one and it got sideways and I had to (laughs) lift and I, you know, those are so anyway, and then I kept going, kept it flat. And even with that moment, I qualified fourth. I was so grateful. He told me that because that was the moment that I actually said, I was so sad and mad and I really wanted to go back out and you can requalify and the whole thing. And then oh. in the end, I, yeah, there's a bunch of rules. It's probably too confusing to try and explain. But point is, is that I was really upset about it, but I also had a little bit of an intuition that it was going to do me more good than the, than qualifying on the pole because had nothing happened because saving it 
is not common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's so be, going 240 miles an hour and getting sideways is almost a can't come back from moment. And so for me in my fourth IndyCar race to have that happen at qualifying for the Indy 500 uh, and then get back in it and keep going and still, you know, have a great starting position did more for my credibility and the relationship with me and the other drivers than if I would have just qualified on the pole. So his answer was just that once you did that, I didn't see you any different. Mm. But of course, that's his perspective. And so we all come into our adult life with the teachings of our parents, the teachings of our environment, of our friends. And so I don't think that that, could have, that wasn't necessarily everybody's perspective, but I think that that was a good voice for the situation because you just, you don't know. Everybody grows up with a little bit of trauma. Everybody grows up with a little skewed perspective, not skewed from the thing that's right, just different. Just different from other different. people. But that was his. And so it was, I was glad to hear that moment paid off. <laughs> that is cool. It's like resilience gives you cred in a way, which isn't like when I think of sort of driving and metal and hard things, it's kind of interesting that like having this ability to almost be flexible, you know, and bounce back from something. <laughs> is what gets here. And well, it shows, it shows character, right? So it's like the whole thing of when it's like, you know, a diamond, it turns into a diamond through pressure, right? And so when we're squeezed, what comes out? And that tends to be a real example of our character. You know, it's like you guys can probably all have stories about in life when you were squeezed or someone else was, meaning things got really difficult and challenging. Did they blame someone? Did they throw you under the bus? Did they get screaming and make people uncomfortable? Did they soften and get people, did they get vulnerable? Like, who yeah. did they become? Who did they become in that moment? And so, you know, it's a vulnerable situation and, you know, yeah. it, it paid off. That's so cool. That's, I mean, sort of relating to being female and, and being physically attractive, often it gets attention, but also it can take away from your cred. Certainly in athletics, it's often, you know, a sort of a stereotype. Did you ever encounter that or how did you deal with I actually would like, I think this would be a fun thing to unpack for us. Your first, your perspectives. Too. I tried to sort of hide it in a way in the beginning, only just in like, mm, didn't wear nail polish. Like, you know, just try yeah. to not like make it obvious. Like, cause I use your hands a lot when you talk about racing, like you'll talk about like this and you'll, you'll use your hands a lot, little things oh. like that. As in, I just didn't want to remind anyone anymore that I was a girl. Like I wanted them to get mm -hmm. lost, lost in the moment of me doing the job and working and communicating yeah. So yeah. things like that, that I would think about in the beginning and just not wanting them, wanting it to be any more obvious than it. I had long hair until a year ago already was. I'm <laughs> loving your hair, by the way. Oh, thanks. Such I a good, like perfect length with perfect yeah. little bend. I love it. Well, thank you. I, yeah, I grew up and cut my hair. Why did you cut your hair just before we even go back? Like, did yeah. you have I'd always wanted to, I'd wanted to for quite a while. Like I just was never brave enough. And uh -huh. so it's like a lot of little things that we do with ourselves, like we identify with something. And so I was very identified with my hair. And, and so, you know, kind of like the flashy car you got to buy just to go do it. It's like, I actually am going to yeah. grow my hair back out again, but 
did it. And I'm just like, I'm so glad I bungee jumped because I'm like, I'm so scared of heights, but I just know I can do it if I have to. So back to um, pretty and girl. and I try to not make too, bring too much attention to it. I did a few things younger where I, you know, was shown in a much more sexy way and Mm -hmm. it drew a lot of attention. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, how cool is this? I I always kind of had this idea that it might take away from who I am or what Mm -hmm. I can do and not what I'm able to do in the car, but what I'm going to be allowed to do, meaning a sponsor, a team, whatever. For sure. It actually catapulted that. And so I was like, wow, sometimes the things that we're denying that make us different are exactly what is needed to move to the next level. You just have to embrace it yourself. And so once I did, then it sort of like was like, wow. And so I realized it didn't take anything away from the driving. It helped get sponsors. It helped bring attention in. And of course, was no worse of a driver. Nobody looked at me you know, nobody looked at me thinking, well, I mean, you wore a swimsuit in a picture, so I'm pretty sure I'm not sure you can go flat through one and two this time. Like no one's saying. So it was just a story in my head. And then I used it. I used it however I felt like. I would say if anything, I've just been kind of unpacking a lot of aspects of my life. I, I tempered it beyond like below my comfort level. I'd say from about, I did swimsuit issue in 2007 and eight, I think. Mm-hmm. And seven was more of like five or six pages. And then 2008. Sports Illustrated for everybody. Yep, Sports Illustrated. Gotta Google it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the kids. Then they asked me if I wanted to do the next year after after the first year. They asked me to come back, but they offered me the full painted section. When I don't know if you guys have seen oh, it. Yeah. Like the where they paint the swimsuits on, and I was like, wow, what an experience that'd be. And no one's ever done all of that. Had done all of them, and so it takes like a whole day, like at least twelve hours to paint one on. And I thought. What an experience to be a part of like that yeah. process and that, you know, creativity and the, you know, odd timing of everything and getting the, like getting done by five o'clock so you can get your sunset picture. And, and anyway, so everybody said I couldn't do it because they're like, you're naked and that's not what we need to be doing. And we have to get sponsors and stuff. And so it was from about that point on, I was still in that issue, but I was just a one pager at the beginning where the con- table of contents was laying on a car because that's so much better. I was just reflecting on that the other day. That was the point in time where I stopped, where I tempered my own comfort zone for public perception. Sexuality and, and, and women is just such this loaded situation. It's like, yeah. I don't, don't know if I know it. <laughs> if I'm feeling into it, I want to hear you guys' perspective, but if I'm feeling into it, it's like, because there's so much power in it. And it's like, how are you using that power? And then, you know, the nuanced difference of like, what is the intention of what you're doing? I know how you see it, but you don't know how I see it. And just because it's not your comfort level doesn't mean it's not my comfort level. And so it's like this messy situation, but I think at the core of it is because like creation is through a woman. Yeah. A lot of power. So there's a ton of power in sexuality. I don't know. Go. Like, I want to hear. I mean, we we work at Goop where, you know, like Gwyneth Paltrow says the word vagina, which she will say, you know, and and like the internet explodes and like people people get crazy. They get completely crazy. But I mean, I have to say working with her has super helped me in that regard because it does, like you said, show the power 
of women's sexuality. People react so powerfully and that it's, that it's still news, you know, <laughs> like even yeah. now. But the way she handles it, when people are like, how could you possibly talk about these things? She's just really open and honest. I feel like by being that way and going with your comfort level and not the comfort level of XYZ person, you know, you change the world ever so slightly. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that. What about you? What do you think? What do you think about what, how does sexual, how has it played into your life? Like what have, have you had any epiphanies or your own thoughts or feelings or your own judgments on situations maybe even? Well, I feel like I had one just now, like what you said about how there's power behind it. And that's what people are afraid of. The misogyny is, is because it's powerful and people are daunted. And when you think about it that way, it's, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. Mm, it's like playing with fire, you know? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, just just to go a little deeper with that. So getting criticized for being a sex symbol, men don't deal with that. And plenty of male athletes do modeling gigs with their shirts off and don't get flack, obviously. How do you navigate that special kind of hypocrisy reserve for women? If I'm being honest... I just really don't care what people say. And I don't know why. I don't really know why. I just don't. I just don't care. I care about my own comfort zone. If I had done something ever that was like, I felt very embarrassed or compromised or taken advantage of, then of course I have a lot of loaded emotions on the back end when things happen. You can take criticism really hard then. But I yeah. never did that. Right. Like you weren't guilty of anything. So why would you care? Did you always feel that way or that sort of? Yeah. yeah I've, I've really never done anything that I was super embarrassed or uncomfortable with or anything like that. You know, even like in those GoDaddy days when there was those commercials <laughs> about go to the internet to see more. I remember there was a few times that there was some creative, you know, ideas that I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, I always spoke up for what I was willing to and whether it was what I was wearing or the creative direction, I, I spoke up. So I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the question is, is how to what and I'm curious what you think, too. What is it going to take, take the charge out of this dynamic? What do you guys think? I mean, I think like you just said, and sort of what I was saying about Gwyneth is, is not caring because I think as women were, you know, we're conditioned to be like, Oh, that bothered you. I'm sorry. Oh, this whole aspect of who I am bothers you. It's you a know? reflection of them. It's that whole yeah. saying of like, you know, the way that you treat me says everything. It says nothing about me and everything about you. Like the way, you know, how we see people is how we see ourselves. It's like every, I've been unpacking this concept of like, you know, what we judge in people. So of course, mm -hmm. in this dynamic, there's a lot of judgment, right? There's yeah, judgment of like, sure. why would you do that? That's taking women down. It's like, okay, in that judgment that you have of this situation, can you see that this is something that you deny in yourself? In yourself. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
And it's an aspect. And if we're all part of the same whole, if we're all one, if we're all source, if we're all mm -hmm. fragments, like we have all of those aspects in us. We have, you know, sexuality, we have aggressiveness, we have anger, we have sweetness. We hold them all, right? Because we're all, if we're all, if oneness is what we're going for, then you have to imagine have it all, all yeah. included in the whole. <laughs> and so if somebody's judging something and it's because they deny them, if you're triggered, it's just something for you to look at within yourself that needs to be healed. That happens. Yeah, it's your per perception, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the not caring about what people think is just the way to go, huh? It's, I think the not caring is because I don't deny it. Right. Mm -hmm. right. So, right. So I'm not, I'm not denying myself being a woman. Right. So like, there's, yeah. I don't care what people say. Cause I'm not denying that. I'm not denying these things. I'm welcoming, I'm allowing them, embracing them, using them mm -hmm. my own comfort level. Yeah. Accepting aspects of yourself. Well, aside from the legendary racing and being a sex symbol, <laughs> you, you've written yeah. <laughs> you've done so much. It's crazy. And a badass and right. Like we're all these things. I'm, I'll be them all. Mm -hmm. You're all of them, but you've written two books. The first was an autobiography, Danica crossed the line. And then the most recent pretty intense, the 90 day mind, body and food plan that will absolutely change your life. Mm -hmm. And you have workouts in there, paleo eating plans, exercises for mental endurance. Have you always been this committed to health and wellness and clean eating? Yeah, I've been interested in it forever. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I can think back to so many iterations of my I'm super healthy oh, and yeah. go, oh my God, <laughs> is that really what I thought was super healthy? I literally <laughs> I would go to the gym and afterwards I'd be like, I'd stand in line forever to get this special bagel, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and I thought, I was like, I'm being healthy. I need to get this bagel. <laughs> I, I would work out and like slam Snapple. Oh <laughs> Tea, right? Cause it's so good for you. My girlfriend and I, we would get white bread, zero fat white bread with fat free <laughs> Italian dressing and dip it. So it'd be like, it's like barely any calories, you know, oh no fat, God. no fat. We'd sit there with a plethora of fruit, like bowls of every kind of fruit you could imagine. Cause we're like, oh man, more fruit, the better. More fruit, yeah. Like chicken, like a piece of grilled ch chicken. And then probably like we'd ingest like 250 grams of sugar in, in fruit. And you know, just like the idea of what was healthy then. So that's what's super fun to me about health and wellness is that there's always going to be the next, the next iteration. There's always yeah. going to be the next yeah. level. And Somebody so, discovers another. You know, thing. I never, you know, 10 years ago, if you'd have told me that I, you know, would be interested in, and in take adaptogens and, you know, 15 <laughs> yeah. adaptogens a day, cause you know, yeah words I couldn't pronounce were going to make me more healthy, like ashwagandha and shilajit and shizandra and ramania, then I'd be like, what language are you speaking? At one point in time, we didn't know what the heck chia seeds were. So, you yeah. know, there's always a new, so I've always been interested in it. And it goes all the way back to like high school. And of course the motivation in the beginning is always like, I want to look better. I want to yeah. wait. I want to whatever. I don't know if there could really be any other origin other than that when you're young. Oh, I think definitely you're not. You're like, yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't do it because you're like, you know, I'm really worried about these arteries. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you also don't do it because it feels good until you've done it for a while. 
That's true. Where I'm at now, where I, I'm, you know, pretty regimented. I'm not locked in solid, but I'm very disciplined and I'm pretty particular. I eat mostly a paleo diet and I lean towards fish a little, little bit more off more so, but, but that's pretty much it. Every now and again, I just decide, like, I just feel like it should be a plant-based meal today or this meal. And, you know, I eat, I eat less animal products than I used to. I've gone through my own iterations of vegan and, you know, taking meat out and things like that. And it just, you know, you got to do what feels right for your body and go through the test yourself. Yeah. I'm always reaching for that next level of consciousness. I'm reaching for that next level of fitness. I'm reaching for that next level of feeling good and energy and recovery and efficiency and clarity I mean, all of that stuff is part of health and wellness. And so, you know, I think that where it's going, if I'm sort of like tapping into health and wellness's, you know, next frontier is, you know, really, really, it's going to be in the mind. I mean, I really mm-hmm. think that consciousness and, you know, creating your own reality and, and, and thinking into your future self and, and knowing what you want and who you are and having autonomy and, you know, getting rid of attachments and codependency and things like that, that these, this is where we're going that will create true wellness and, and reduce the dis-ease in the body. What did self-care look like when you were racing and how would you come down from such adrenaline rushes and relax? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. It kind of brings me into this aspect of balance. The concept of balance sounds like 50-50. It sounds like perfectly in the middle. It sounds like- (laughs) Which never- Right, which it's your own personal balance, which could for me look like about 80-20, which was like 80% work and like 20% restorative and like stuff for me. So it included things like nature walks with my dogs. It included working out. It included yoga. It included, I'm more about this now, but meditation and journaling now, but I didn't do it as much then. So those were kind of the things that I felt like I needed to do. Like I really liked getting out, you know, at least once every other day for like a good hour and a half walk with my dogs. I have a very insatiable mind for information and learning. And so I would go on my walks and I'd listen to information. I'd listen to like things on YouTube and podcasts and I expand my horizons of all kinds of crazy new ideas. So that to me is super interesting. I always take a vacation every year. That's obviously not, that's more of a macro balance than a micro, but important. (laughs) Yeah. And something to look forward to and a really good reset. There's always a chasing element to balance because while, you know, it depends on how micro you go. If you're looking at right now, you're working, right? You're not taking care of your health, essentially. You're not taking care of your family or you're not taking care of your finances or whatever crap needs to be done, right? And so then after that, you'll go to it. So it's kind of not trying to get too worried about the micro balances along the way, right? You can never at a micro level be perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Just doing one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. So don't freak out. (laughs) And for now, you you mentioned meditation. Are there any other things that now you do? Yeah. I do much more with journaling, uh, Mm -hmm. meditation. I'm a real dialogue girl. So, you know, it's really meditation is not 
super easy. Although when I get into moments, I mean, I can get some really deep information, but I I do that regularly have been for five or six months now, which is nice. It's like a dedicated time for myself. It's ritualistic. I burn things. I pull cards. I, you know, have crystals. I do, you know, certain things. I have like an altar that has things that are meaningful to me. So that feels nice. The journaling is super helpful. So like I said, I'm a very dialogue kind of oriented person. So I feel like I I'm sort of having conversations with my higher self a lot. I was just doing it the other day and an idea had sort of come full circle and I was like, oh my God, hang on a second. Let me go get my journal. I was like looking at the one, like not the most recent one, but the one before that. And I was like, oh wait, it's the journal before this. And then I went back to, I was like, there it is. There's the thing that I wrote down when I was soul journaling and it's coming to truth right now. Holy crap. And it was like, You know, it's so, so helpful for me. I've learned boundaries, which is conceptually feels like to me before where I'm at now, boundaries were always something that it seemed like were for someone else to me. Yeah. Like, don't do this to me. Instead is flipping it and saying, this is what I'm willing to put up with. And it goes to this point, but this is the limit of it. This is the boundary line for me, not something for you to do to me, but for me to allow in you, of you, from Mm -hmm. you. And, and so it's almost like a force field of like protection for yourself and your, and maintaining that sovereignty and autonomy and being able to, that's the only way that you can truly be happy. Otherwise you're always going to be at the mercy of someone else's decisions and judgments and whether they love you or not, or, or, you know, I mean, that's, has nothing to do with you. You have your own existence. And so I never had boundaries. And so learning boundaries has been beautiful, which ironically enough, I feel like is very difficult to develop when you're not alone. So being has been really helpful for that. Nurturing my friendships a little bit more. I think that's been a really positive thing for my emotional. Like I've always had very deep friendships, but I've expanded the amount of them I have by just investing a little bit more. Like I, I was always one who, you know, always had sort of, you know, a handful of five to 10, like really, really deep relationships. But now that's doubled or tripled just because I invested a little bit more time. So, and what we put into it, we get back and, you know, it's not with that intention, but it just naturally happens. And so that's part of your well-being too. You retired from racing in 2018, right? Mm -hmm. What was making that decision like? It was 2017 and my primary sponsor had left at the beginning of the year and they had that year and the next year still on their contract. And so this was a very like, I had never had that kind of issue before. I'd always had funding for years beyond wherever I was at. I mean, that just, you know, I was in a fortunate situation with sponsors because I was, I had something unique to offer. It felt good for a minute for, for me to say, oh my God, I'm not ready. Because the truth of the matter is, is I actually don't really, never really, racing was not what I loved. I mean, I loved mm. racing. I didn't really love it. Like it wasn't like, I, I haven't, I have no interest. I don't care. I don't watch all the races. I don't go to the races. <laughs> I other cars. I don't, you know, like I don't care what I loved about it. Now it's still racing, but it's just aspects of racing. I sort of feed in other ways now. Once that sort of seed was planted that it could be over, I sort of, it, kind of bloomed a little bit. And then at the same time I was transitioning into, and this is why, 
it's such a, it's like the new life is going to cost your old one saying I was expanding spiritually and really diving into that aspect of life and myself and my relationship with it and my participation in it. And I just grew out of it. I didn't resonate with it anymore. I didn't resonate with having to be an asshole out there. I didn't resonate with some of the environment and the energy and the people and the feelings that I was having out there. Like it just kind of felt like people weren't happy and then toting the line for, you know, sort of, you know, companies and things that you didn't really, you know, believe in as much. And, you know, just like the whole thing became uncomfortable. Yeah. And energetically, I don't know if you guys have experienced this. I would imagine, especially being at Goop, you guys probably have had some spiritual expansion. And so you know, oh, certain sure. people or energies just don't feel good anymore. That's always, they just, you're just kind of like, eh. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. It, it creates a boundary all on its own. You know, it's yeah, like, it's right. like a, eh, no, you know. Yep. And so that kind of just started happening too at the same time. And between those two things, then I, I just finally allowed myself, well, I, I, I call it letting go, not quitting, because I, I really didn't try super hard to get a sponsor at the end. But I thought, man, if it's aligned and it's meant to be, and if, you know, I'm, I should, yeah. if, if it comes, I'll take it and I'll keep going. But it didn't. And so I let it go. Good. We love your podcast. Pretty intense. You interview a lot of guests that are in our goop world as well. Like Wim Hof was part of our Netflix show, which everyone has to watch that episode starring Megan O'Neill yeah. <laughs> and Mark Hyman and Kimberly Snyder. How did that start? Well, the idea came up in the beginning of 19 and it was sort of around sort of just like what it would, what it takes to do a podcast. And then I went, Oh my God. I love to talk and I love to talk to people and I have so many questions that sort of dawned on me. I was like, that is perfect. I think <laughs> that would be really fun. So then the sort of the idea was birthed and then went through some phases and some people and kind of sort of getting to where it is right now, as far as it's, you know, organization and ease. I mean, from the very beginning, it's so fun. Like the, fun. I feel like maybe Tenth interview I did was like Neil deGrasse. Like I mean, I'm interviewing an astrophysicist with like 20 minutes notice, and I oh my god, because it was an email that had come in at the end of a day. It was we were shooting in New York. It was an email that came in, and I had had my bag on my shoulder, and I was ready to go. And and he said, uh, the producer was like, well, I just got an email, and he can be here in. 30 minutes. And I stood there and I was like, for a minute, the do you want to do it made me pause and go. And then I went, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's go. Like, when in Rome. And so I sat down and I was like, everybody shut up and let me think of my questions. Yeah, 20 minutes for an astrophysicist. Uh, let me think about this for a second. And I wrote down some stuff on cards and we had an amazing conversation. I mean, Neil carries it, let's face it. But <laughs> great, you know, speaker, but, and so grandiose and his sort of like delivery goes like this. 
but I mean, I've just, I've learned so much and I have been interviewed my whole life. And since I was 14 and while there's some level of processing that happens when you verbalize thought, like when somebody asks you a question and you, you go through the verbal sort of processing of it, that is helpful for myself and certain things, but it's not as expansive as it is when you interview others and you sit there and listen. So I had to learn how to listen. I'm a talker. Like I, I keep going. <laughs> and so this learning, this pause, learning, letting people finish, learning how to, you know, how to carry and guide the conversation and, and the level of preparation and how that preparation looks now versus in the beginning, you know, that kind of stuff is all taking its path. It's been so cool. It's so fun. That's all I can say is like, I get nervous before every one of them. Like, okay, so tomorrow I'm interviewing Matthew McConaughey and I was like, Okay. Like I, I get nervous and I get like, I hope I want to do a really good job. I guess I feel like I want it to be the best interview they've ever done. I hope that I've asked questions that they've never received before. I hope we go down paths that open their heart wide open and they surprise themselves even what comes out at times and can walk away and say, wow, nobody asked me those things. And I mean, that I live for that. And, and I think it's probably a little bit of, you know, the sort of exposure I had to being interviewed and, and just, you know, when somebody asked me like, how do you feel being back at Kansas Motor Speedway? And then I'm like, <laughs> is that the best you can do? Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> Since I held them accountable for it, I hold myself accountable for it. So the level of preparation is something that is, it has a little anxiety built into it, but it's also part of the growing, right? And only in discomfort do we grow. It's growing pains. Well, everyone has to listen. I I listened to the Kimberly Snyder one this morning when I was working out and it was amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. She's so sweet. Kimberly's really a sweet soul. Okay. So podcasts, books, and then you also have- I do make wine. So that's a project that I've been working on for a long time. When did it start and how, and why are there two? This question is always like, why? And then the answer is always ridiculous. And it's just that I like to drink it. I mean, that's why I make wine. I like to drink it. So, you know, by nature, the things that we're interested in, we, you know, a dreamer goes, where can I take this? So I was standing in Napa Valley in 2006 on a vacation on this beautiful knoll in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of the valley floor, looking out, you know, to the beautiful vineyards at holding a glass of white wine at 10 a.m. And it just came <laughs> over me all of a sudden where I, and I don't know, I don't know why this would be, but I was like, man, it would be so cool to have something like this someday. And so then the dream was born. And that's why that label, which is Somnium, which means dream in Latin. That's where that one was born. And it was a long game project when you're starting from scratch. So I bought the property and that was 2012. And because once I get an idea, it goes really fast. And so it bought a property in 2009 and started planting in 11. And finally in 2017, my 14 vintage was for sale. So it's a long game project. Mm. And then when because of my because of my love, my history, my involvement and knowledge in, in the wine world and presence, an opportunity for rose came about. And I love expanding in this category because for me, the the core value associated with wine for me, and it's on my somnium label, but it's a be here now, like you are here, which is like 
I said, be here now. Like I'm Ram Dass. I'm not, <laughs> but like you are here is what it says on the back. And it's like, there's a little red dot oh, cool. and it's implying, it's implying like that you are here on a hotel room, you know, like you are here in this room. Here's the fire exit, but it's implying to be present. It's implying that, you know, can't we just get back to like healthy communication, you know, sharing stories, over drinking, being funny, being a little bit free and just kind of really connecting and telling stories and being with each other and setting your phone aside and setting all that crap aside and just relax. So for me, it's about connecting. It's about the relationships that are developed in those moments where you're sitting at a dinner table sharing with people. So then when the Rosé Project came about, I was like, okay, cool. I mean, there's nothing more authentic than making Rosé in Provence. I know people don't haven't always loved me, but I hope that at least my authenticity was something that they could respect. And so it's a, it's a value of mine. Yeah, that's a good value. I hope someday we'll all be sitting around <laughs> sipping Rosé and like yeah. being in the moment without our computers, no longer socially isolated. I've done some work with Joe Dispenza and he has this sort of practice he does with wine and they've done Ooh. some scientific studies on it. I was thinking this is how we can work together in the future on Goop for some episode where you sort of, it's like this whole like prayer situation. It's like an intention and then you down the whole glass. It's like a process. And then there is like a chemical reaction. It literally opens up your heart. I don't know if it's vasodilator oh, or what, yeah, what something. There's yeah. science in there and it's all a little bit above my um, pay grade. Joe <laughs> can explain it really well. But yeah, I mean, there is a heart opening when it comes to that. And, you know, if I have to chug a whole glass of wine to make it happen, then damn it, I'm going to do it. You guys do such cool stuff. I like, I watched that whole series on Netflix and awesome. I love it. I love the internal participation. I mean, nothing sort of speaks authenticity more than you guys taking part in it and you guys being in it and your experience and you're just breaking people open, just breaking down this cognitive dissonance that so many people have. And I'm trying to do, uh, that's part of, I feel like my mission too. And so I'm super grateful for your gut, your, your participation in being, being vulnerable and mm. brave. Well, thank you. We're <laughs> thank you. Likewise. Yeah. And I do think, yeah, we got to do something in the future. Yeah. Good. I love that. One last question for you, Danica. You've given us so much amazing advice, but what is your advice for women starting a business or career when the path feels especially boundary breaking? Well, I, I feel like what you're trying to say is when it feels impossible or when it feels like it's, it feels not possible, if you continue to approach this thing that you want with that level of consciousness, that it's too hard, that it's not possible, it will continue to be too hard and not possible. So you have to find a way to believe that it is. And you have to find a way to uh, see it in its totality and see it in its final product or wherever you want to end up, how, whatever you want to get from it, whatever emotion you want to feel, what you want to have, what you want to be able to do as a result, you got to see yourself there and you got to believe in that. And if you don't believe in that, then it won't happen. And that's what I would say about my own career is that for some damn reason, when I was a kid, 
I just believed that I would be a race car driver, even through those years in England and coming back where, you know, 19, 20, 21, where I didn't have a ride. Like there was a vast majority of the time that I wasn't racing, which Mm. you'd think would be super detrimental to the ability to make it happen. And I wouldn't be cultivating my practice when it was the most critical and that I may think, well, I better come up with a backup plan. You know, in fact, I just interviewed Josh Jumel last night and his advice was like, no backup plan, no plan B. Oh, and that's so true because the plan B implies that you think plan A won't happen. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you just got to stick with it, but you got to believe right? So, and, and excuses are, are just a limiting factor. And of course, like it's going to be hard. If you want something truly great and you think that it's not going to come with its roadblocks and it's not going to come with its trials and tribulations and with its testing of your passion and belief in it, then you're wrong. People are like, oh, that was hard. And they get back up and then it gets hard again. And they're like, oh, you know, maybe it's not for me. And then you lose a few more and then it gets, then you get it back at it and then it gets hard again. And then they're like, okay, maybe not. And then you got to get back up again. And it's, and it's in getting back up again because you believe it's possible that it happens. Tough times don't last. Tough people do. And I know that's such a cliche oh, statement, but it's one. really true. I've never heard that. I like that. Right. Yeah, me too. I never yeah. heard it. Good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking all this time with us and, and, and for just giving us some really great answers. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I love doing it. We're all, you know, as I, as I say to people too, I guess I like, I like my Ram Dass. We're all just walking each other home. It's mm. <laughs> another good one. Yeah. <laughs> love it. Thanks guys for all you do. I truly mean it. Wow. I loved her. Oh, she was really something. I loved yeah. everything she had to say. She had such good advice. I especially love what she said about being criticized for being a sex symbol. And she was just like, the secret is I just didn't care what people thought. Yeah. It's so, it's so GP. I mean, that's exactly what she's, you know, she always, you know, it's like, oh, we've got these huge fans and these people who are just like haters. And it's like, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. How freeing to not care what people think. Yeah, I know. And it's like, I think it's easier for some people, <laughs> obviously, yeah. than others. I can not care in certain contexts and then other contexts okay. I really care what people think. If you could just be yourself and not not think about that. <laughs> and not people, please. Like, you know, a lot of us have that that desire. Yeah. And she talked about boundaries. I mean, I like, you know, I know you and I have been talking about like just putting in that you know, whatever it is, it's a walk or a yoga class in the day so that you don't spend your entire waking hours working at home. So easy to do. And it's up to you. It's not up to some person to come in and say, Oh, you're working too hard. You know, you have to do it yourself. And and the up to you is hard, obviously, but that's the only way it's going to happen. Like what she was saying about like, you set the boundary Mm-hmm. for other people it's like yes. it's only about you what you want and what what's important to you yeah I thought that was really cool I loved her saying which I had never heard I don't think you did either the tough times end but tough people don't oh yeah I'd never heard that that's great like the idea that something great is going to be hard 
Right. Like no matter what it is, it's going to be hard and that other people are going to find it too hard. And that if you really love it, you're going to keep going. You know, I mean, that has been true in so many different <laughs> aspects of my life. <laughs> totally. And the no plan B too. Yeah. Don't have a plan B because it means you're setting yourself up for failure. Kind of like that. It's bold. Well, all those things, all those things, like you're talking about having a baby and all those things apply to that. Yeah. There is no plan B. <laughs> Literally and figuratively, but also just like you're going to do this thing that's hard and it's going to be great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was such a good episode. I just loved her. She just, she made me think about so much though. I got a lot out of that one. So on the site, I do a column called Megan Tries It and you do one called Ask Jean and we get a whole bunch of beauty questions. And we're going to answer them all here right now. (laughs) Yes. So should we get into today's Ask Me Anythings or maybe Ask Us Anything? Yes. And if anyone's listening and has a question they want us to answer here, just send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. It could be about self-tanner, crow's feet, dry shampoo, parabens, our favorite bath soak, non-toxic lube. Or anything else. Now to today's question. Okay. This question is from Haley H. I have the Dr. Sturmnite Serum and Hyaluronic Serum the Vintner's Daughter Active Treatment Essence and Vintner's Daughter Botanical Serum, as well as the new Goop Face Oil. Could you recommend a night and morning routine with these? I use Tata Face Oil Cleanser and Goop Microderm Exfoliator as well. Would love to know your thoughts on how to layer the products to get the best use out of them all, or if they aren't meant to be used altogether. I think you can use most of them together if you want. What I would do, let's start with let's start with night because we've got Dr. Serum night serum. I would pat on the the active treatment essence from Vintner's daughter first after cleansing. If you've just exfoliated with microderm, I would not put on the essence right after because it has more acids and it, it could be too much for someone's skin. So nighttime, you start with your Tata face oil cleanser. Then um, I'd wait a few minutes and then pat in the Vintner's Daughter Active Treatment Essence. And then I'd go in with the Night Serum from Dr. Sturm. And then if you wanted to finish it off, I'd seal it in with the new Goop Face Oil. It has a whole bunch of treatment benefits as well. So you're just kind of getting layers and layers of, of different actives that will address your skin and make it look better in different ways. And then you go to sleep and feel good. (laughs) And then when you wake up in the morning, I don't usually cleanse in the morning, but that's totally up to you. I often in the shower will do a a microderm exfoliating. And so if I did exfoliate, once again, I, I would not use the treatment essence right after exfoliating. So if you exfoliate, I'd go straight to the Barbara Sturm Hyaluronic Serum. If you're not exfoliating when you, when you get up in the morning, then I'd start with serum. So do the Dr. Sturm hyaluronic serum, and then I would wait a few minutes and put the Vintner's Daughter botanical serum, huge favorite of mine, over the top of that. And then if you're really, if you're really dry, you could layer that with the Goop face oil. They're both, they're very different. So you could do that if you were needing more moisture. Either way, no matter what moisture levels you need, you also need a sunscreen after that, or all your work will be for naught. I am super into organic pharmacy. They have a 30 and a 50. Also, I love the 30 from Unsun. But those are the routines I would give to Haley. That's it for today's episode. Thanks again for joining us on the Goop Beauty Closet. 
You can learn more about our podcast series at goop.com slash beauty closet podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen to other great episodes by subscribing on Apple podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Bye.